0: This podcast is supported by an educational grant by Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. G'day and welcome back to JCMS Author Interviews. I'm Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery and a Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Michelle Ramin, a colleague of mine here at the University and the author of an article that I selected for CME credit from the November-December 2019 edition of the journal. Dr. Amin's article, the, t- entitled The Treatment of Mycoplasma pneumonia induced Rash and Mucositis with Cyclosporine, is available for free for the next three weeks through the uh, JCMS website. I'm very happy that Dr. Amin has been able to uh, join us today. She's an Associate Professor of Dermatology and Community Pediatrics here at the University of Calgary. She's also the Vice Chair of the Camp Liberté Society. So, uh, Michelle, welcome uh, back uh, to a JCMS Podcast. I appreciate your taking the time to be with us today and help us understand and bring to life the um, article that you published in the uh, JCMS called The Treatment of Mycoplasma Pneumonia-Induced Rash and Mucositis with uh, cyclosporin. Thank you. Now, a relatively new entity, I mean, this was kind of looked at it 2015. And I remember in, in uh, my emergency room practice um, seeing these people and really working them up for SJS and treating them for SJS and wondering why it's all the mouth and, 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 and genital uh, mucosal involvement and not so much skin. So what have you learned from 2015 forward with these three cases you present to us?
1: Well, the key thing I think I've learned over the last For five years, is how typically these cases present. It's usually a a child or a young or an adolescent who comes in with this URTI or lower respiratory tract infection, a prodrome. So they really do, they usually have a cough, they usually have been a bit unwell, there's kind of a history. They definitely sound like there's some kind of either viral or early bacterial illness going on. And then to once that prodrome is established, they start to develop sores. Uh, initially, it if, tends to affect the oral mucosa. So, generally, what you'll see is that clinical picture of a child who has really severe uh, hemorrhagic crusted mucositis affecting the lips. And then they'll have ing- started to have injected conjunctiva. They might have urethral involvement. I think anal involvement is a little bit less common but uh, typically multi, multi-site mucositis. And then the striking thing when you look at these patients because you see how bad their mucositis is, is that they really don't have a lot of skin lesions. The mucositis is drastically out of proportion to the skin lesions. So I think that's, that's the thing that, I, that has been just rein, reinforced again and again with these patients, is that they have this typical, I guess morphology of uh, very, very severe mucositis Uh, and out of proportion to their skin lesions, which tend to be either bolus or macular erythema. They typically don't have the uh, classical targets of erythema multiforme So
0: the prodrome, a couple of days, I noticed in case one of three, um, although this, and recognizing this was her second episode of this, um, she had a 10-day prodrome, but most is two to three days. Would that be fair? I think up to about about,
1: after about a week, a week, in eh? most cases,
0: and, and of course, by the time you're seeing them, they already have the mucositis. I would assume.
1: Yes, usually These when when we see them, they do.
0: Right. So, in in um, in the original description of Stevens-Johnson syndrome, it was a mucosal disease. Mm-hmm. Do you think they misdiagnosed it in the very beginning?
1: Yes, well, if you look back to the, that original paper, the Stevens and Johnson paper, I think it's from 1922, uh, with those two cases, both of them had a respiratory prodrome and one of them completely recovered, and the other, well, one of them recovered very well. The second one, I think, was in a non-tertiary care center initially and was transferred centrally later on in his disease, and he ended up with complications from his ocular involvement, he ended, was left blind, but otherwise recovered really well, too. So they, they sound like uh, they could have been our patients. Um, and I think over over time, it has the distinction between uh, SJS and MERM has, has become increasingly fuzzy, and as we look back uh, retrospectively, it's, it's really hard to, it, well, it can be hard to separate out those patients. But there's a, there's a kind of obscure study in a, a Japanese study that I think was published in a journal called uh, Allergology in 2011 that Neil Shear pointed out to me at some point. And it was an SJS study, and they actually looked at SJS cases that were induced, that were uh, felt in the, finally, I guess, that were attributed to drug versus SJS that was attributed to infection. And they found that in the ones that were attributed to drug, there was a lot more hepatitis. The ones that were attributed to infection, there was a lot more respiratory, uh, respiratory program, respiratory illness associated. So I think it's been, it exists in the literature, we just have to look at it with the right lens to pick out those distinctions.
0: So MIRM is the new mnemonic, M I R M for Mycoplasma Pneumonia-Induced Rash and Mucositis. Yes. And has it become pretty well recognized throughout the pediatric dermatology world now as MERM?
1: Yes, I think MERM is a recognizable entity to, or an, an accepted entity to many pediatric dermatologists. Uh, one thing we've been talking about as part in our P- pediatric dermatology research alliance group is um, including other respiratory pathogens as potential triggers and using a terminology that would be more inclusive. And the terminology that we proposed is RIME, so it's reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption. It's uh, a kind of a project that we've been working on to improve how these patients are classified because I think sometimes in patients that look like classical MERM where we don't uh, ultimately prove that there was a mycoplasma, that mycoplasma was present with the available tests, then people might conclude that this is not actually MERM. But in fact, there's probably a number of different respiratory pathogens that can trigger a similar clinical picture, and we just don't have the test available to pick those up yet.
0: Okay, so let me learn this new mnemonic. (laughs) Uh, respiratory-induced
1: Reactive, infectious, reactive, infectious. infectious, infectious, mucocutaneous eruption. So it's rhyme. It's easier. There are other there are publications that have proposed the terminology rerm Okay, so reactive, infectious,
0: mucocutaneous eruption. eruption. Yes. Okay, and we. I don't call know that if you rhyme now.
1: Yes, okay. there is a publication on RIRM, R i r m. I think it's respiratory in. In, respiratory infection-induced rash and mucositis, um, and that was that was term was proposed based on a patient who in whom clematophila pneumonia was identified.
0: So rhyme or murm, um whatever we're talking about amongst each other. It's eleven o'clock at night. You have this child in front of you. Typical presentation, morphology. You know, you're well versed on treatment now. Give me some uh, clues as to what we're gonna start these kids on, how we're gonna manage them, and so forth?
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, well, cl- we generally the diagnosis can be established clinically if you can establish that uh, history of respiratory symptoms, usually with, they'll have a fever, some uh, cough, uh, possibly some shortness of breath if they've actually got a pneumonia. And uh, on, on examination, you might actually find some findings of pneumonia, or the pediatricians that are examining the patient may find those uh, symptoms if you are, or those signs if you are an, uh, in a part of an on call service. Um, the chest x ray can be helpful as well. Sometimes there are signs of pneumonia, but a negative chest x ray doesn't rule out mycoplasma. And then uh, we can do, there are some tests that can be performed in virtually every center to establish, to help establish the diagnosis, although the, the, those tests won't be back until after the treatment has been initiated. And those would be things like a mycoplasma PCR, which is generally ordered on a nasopharyngeal swab and it's part of a respiratory pathogen panel. The mycoplasma serology can also be ordered. In most centers, it's an IgM, but if you can get an IgEG, then you can do convalescent serology which you can repeat in two to four weeks and look for a tighter increase to see if there is an active infection. Um, And those are really the two two main tests. PCR is considered the gold standard for mycoplasma diagnosis. And then uh, treatment can be initiated in these patients if you're really sure based on that clinical picture of impressive mucositis with limited skin lesions, uh, a respiratory prodrome that preceded onset of these uh, impressive mucocutaneous lesions uh, with treatment for presumed mycoplasma pneumonia, and that would be either a macrolide or doxycycline. And at the same time, if they are very severe and appear to be rapidly progressing and it's early in in their disease, uh, within the first few days, then a cyclosporine can be a useful adjunct to, um, I guess, lessen the severity of their eruption and possibly lead to a shorter healing time.
0: Do you think that simply treating the mnemonic process is going to be sufficient? I mean, I am yes. I'm, I'm. Yeah. I have this picture in my yes. mind of sick child, severe mucositis, um, cough, fever, in-emerge. Why wouldn't you use cyclosporine straight away, in addition to treating the infectious illness that you presume? And is there a differential diagnosis? Is there... I mean, if I look at the kid in 2012 or 2013, I'd say, well, you know, um, I'm not so certain about this mycoplasma thing, although mycoplasma is, you know, th- we all thought it was a, a a cause of Steven Johnson syndrome. I might just sort of say, listen, I think this child has Steven Johnson syndrome. I'm going to start cyclosporine today because, you know, I believe that's the, uh, the the treatment yes. of choice now.
1: Yes, while well, Steven Johnson syndrome is the differential diagnosis for these patients, if you're talking about drug-induced Steven Johnson syndrome, and so it is important to elicit drug history and make sure that there isn't um, a potential drug trigger, but typically these patients look different than drug-induced SJS patients because they just don't have this amount, the degree of skin involvement that you would expect with SJS, and they're not, they don't progress that way. They, you'll get a history of two or three days of the mucositis evolving and becoming more severe without extension onto the face, which we would typically see with Steven Johnson. So um, in terms of treating the pneumonic process, I think, you mean, you mean like treating the pneumonia? Is yeah. So, the so,
0: you know, um, the k- kid's there. You're there. It's the middle of the yes. night. The, the, um, you know, the pediatricians can do a very nice, and ID people can do a very nice job of treating the pneumonic process. And the question for you isn't how do I treat the pneumonia. It's what's going on. What's going on here with the skin, right? And prior to this, you know, thought of uh, now, uh, uh, myrm or rim or rhyme or whatever we're going to call it. Um, you know, I would look at that child and say, "Geez, I think there's a pretty good chance that that Stevens Johnson syndrome is the, this picture." And don't don't forget that you know that we there are drug induced, but we also think there are infectious causes of SJS mm-hmm. as well. It's eleven o'clock at night. Am I going to start somebody on cyclosporin? Do I do you think that the antibiotic therapy is sufficient to manage both the respiratory disease and this immunological event?
1: Yes, so in a hospital if in, in the hospital setting, it's quite easy to get cyclosporin and I would recommend starting that right away. The antibiotics have not been shown to improve or have any impact on skin uh, on the skin reactions induced by mycoplasma pneumonia so the primary reason to treat with an antibiotic is for the pneumonia itself and I guess also because we're giving cyclosporin which is theoretically somewhat immunosuppressive we don't want we don't want to leave an untreated infection uh, so typically what we would do in our center is start the cyclosporin and antibiotic treatment at the same time
0: the next question I'm going to ask you is about steroids we order it at the same time. Whether or not you know these kids actually get this stuff in any order or hours from the time you actually see it is the real disaster, right?
1: Well, that is extrapolated from the literature on Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, where doxycycline is the required treatment, um, and it and studies I guess studies that had found that there was no dental staining with short courses of doxycycline, so. The reason that we brought that point up is because cyclosporin, because it's metabolized by CYP3A4, interacts with the macrolide antibiotics. So you could get a slightly higher cyclosporin level, um, and so it would be not—it's not optimal. Although it's a short duration of therapy to combine a macrolide with cyclosporin, and doxycycline would be a better option. Um, in general, in general, we do try—I do try to give doxycycline if I have the option. The other thing, just quickly to point out about cyclosporin, is that often it's given intravenous for these patients because of their severe mucositis, and the intravenous dose is about, I think it's about a third of the oral dose, and that's just something to uh, put into the equation when prescribing IV cyclosporin, because on the wards, they're used to giving cyclosporin for things like bone marrow transplant, and so doses of up to 15 milligrams per kilogram might be normal, oral equivalent might be normal, and so I have also run into situations where maybe there was not a, an appropriate dose conversion.
0: Let's just yeah. highlight that dose. So, so if you're using, so let's go through the oral dosing of cyclosporine for this condition.
1: Sure, it would be three to five milligrams per kilogram per day.
0: And the intravenous dosing?
1: Would be one third of that. So, it would be about one, somewhere around 1.5. To, or 1 to 1.66 milligrams per kilogram per day.
0: Okay, and, and that's outlined in the article for people that need to reference it.
1: We definitely put in the oral dosing, but I'm not sure that we put in the uh, information about how to convert to intravenous, and that would be something that could be reviewed by a pharmacist as well. But I know here, I ran in, at my own center, I ran into a situation where we had prescribed cyclosporine oral, and they converted it to intravenous at the same dose. Which it would have been a much higher dose. And when I talked to the pharmacist, the explanation that I was given is that they're familiar with cyclosporine for other indications, and so they felt that that dosing might be appropriate.
0: Okay, so uh, good warning for people to watch out for the conversion. Okay, so you know we've got typical patient. We've got we, we've 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 got these folks on the the kids on the ward now. Um, they're they're improving. We made the right diagnosis and. What are your discharge criteria? Do you want to see? Yeah, the, the response has been pretty gratifying. It's been very quick um, in these three yes. cases that, any, uh, that you publish. So tell me what sort of things I might look for on the ward.
1: Yes. So usually the criteria, the major criterion for discharge is being able to tolerate oral intake because these children have to go home and be able to manage, uh, manage independently. And um, I just as a just as an aside, I guess I should I didn't mention that when we admit these patients, we also provide uh quite it, quite um what's the word? We provide detailed instructions on mouth care, uh or or mucositis care in general, because that is an area that's often missed. So things for pain control, things for coating um mucosal surfaces.
0: Okay. Let me me just back you up even further, not even further, but into the middle of that statement. What what would you recommend? What's your kind of standard oral care in this situation?
1: Yes, so the standard oral care that we recommend for these patients is either a mucositis mouthwash. There's so many recipes for those, but something that actually coats uh, the the oral mucosa so that patients can begin to eat more quickly or at least be able to have a little bit of uh, water and clean their mouth properly too. Um so that uses an example? Yeah, so an example would be like the magic mouthwash, which is I think one to one to one uh viscous lidocaine to diphenhydramine syrup to diavol. Um okay. that's the kind of I guess it's like it's the conversion of the old pink lady which used to use Piptobismol. And then the other thing that can be really helpful is a sucrophate suspension it really just coats the whole inside of the mouth so they're not as sore they're able to drink or eat a little bit of soft food Um, the sucrophate suspension is usually I hope I would have to look it up I think it's one gram per 10 milliliters and then they can do a swish and spit four times a day 10 cc swish and spit four times a day and then for uh, urogenital mucosa or for urethral like urethra or vulva we would recommend using a potent topical steroid mint several times a day. And with uh, urethral involvement, if it extends onto the glands penis, we often will use a nonstick dressing like a uh, gelinet is the commonly used one because it has to be frequently removed when the patient has to go to the bathroom.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Those are the tips that... In the,
1: Probably way too detailed. No, not at all.
0: Because <laughs> those, those are the things that dermatologists um, need to add to care. And uh, yes. without having those at our sort of fingertips, it's, it's difficult to, to do, especially when we see you know, this sort of condition quite infrequently, um, so so thank you for that. That's good.
1: Yeah, the other thing is, is pain, con- pain control is really important as well for these patients. Uh, because the more that they can use their mouthwashes and go to the bathroom, the sooner they'll be able to be discharged. So um, either regular Tylenol and Advil or morphine or consulting the acute pain service.
0: Okay, so now we've got them better. They're getting better and discharge is oral intake or, or I'm assuming voiding on their own and that sort of thing too. And what kind of time frame should we be expecting that once we've initiated treatment?
1: Yeah, somewhere between the three to five to seven day mark. I guess after about three days, many patients are kind of borderline uh, ready. And five days, I would say most patients are ready to go home.
0: Okay. Well, that was great. Now, just one um, thing I want to to get across the audience. I don't think this is rare. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, give me some sense of how many of these quote, typical patients are you seeing now versus maybe 10 years ago, maybe it was uh, more rare. Maybe we've had a change in presentation. Maybe this truly is a new entity.
1: Yes, I think they come in outbreaks. I, In, ge- in general, and in, in my experience, I've not seen a lot of isolated cases. There seems to be like two or three that come at the same time. And I would say we see somewhere between Maybe eight and ten patients a year with this very typical presentation. Um, I think if you look, if you look at the literature too, there's some evidence that certain strains of mycoplasma might have more tendency to trigger MRM. There was an outbreak, for example, in Colorado where they identified a specific strain of mycoplasma that caused really a quite a very significant outbreak. For I think it was something like 14 or 15 patients in a short time frame. So. There certainly are, and I think there are other things, as we mentioned, as we talked about previously, I think there are, are respiratory pathogens other than mycoplasma that can trigger this kind of reaction. So when those viruses or, I don't know, other infections are floating around, possibly we may see more merm cases as well. MIRM or RIME cases, I should say, as well. R-
0: RIME, yeah. Okay, well, stay tuned um, for the, the next new mnemonic um, to, to present to us. So uh, we can all look uh, quite educated now when we don't talk about merm so much as we talk about rhyme and maybe a subset, which uh, would be merm. So thank you once again for spending the time with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure you've made a lot of people way more comfortable, particularly in the middle of the night when we're called to see these patients. And now we clearly have something that we can do, not just give a drug, but all the other tips that you gave us. So thank you again for taking the time.
1: Thanks very much for inviting me. I'd also really like to thank Sophia Colantonio and Heidi Lee, a medical student applying to dermatology. And Sophia is a recent graduate from the University of Ottawa program who put a lot of hard work into this case series. And I think they learned a lot in the process, just like I did.
0: Well, thank you for recognizing their efforts. It's it's, uh, nice to know we have young, enthusiastic colleagues propping us up. That was Dr. Michelle Ramin, an associate professor of dermatology and community pediatrics here at the University of Calgary. She's also the vice chair of the Camp Liberté Society, which is a camp for children with skin disorders here in Canada. She was talking about her article, The Treatment of Mycoplasma Pneumonia-Induced Rash and Mucositis with Cyclosporin, that she co-authored in the November-December 2019 issue of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. This was an outstanding presentation of clinical relevance. Uh, she portrayed the morphology of this condition and the fact that it is quite characteristic and outlined to us very clearly uh, the treatment steps that need to be done. I won't uh, redo these for you because in her, her words are much better than mine. Um, I will tease you and just to uh, get you to remember what a merm is and what a rhyme is and uh, if you can't remember uh, please replay and uh, re-listen. So um, that's it for this episode of the JCMS Author Interviews podcast. I hope you enjoyed your time with us. Uh, Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And remember that these articles from the podcast are now freely available for three weeks from the time that the podcasts are posted. I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.